it's just really it broke my heart like it it absolutely oh yeah broke my heart when i saw it i was i was just walking down the hall and i got an alert on my phone and i just like stopped like there in the middle of the hallway and i start like looking up articles to figure out what was going on oh yeah i was actually when you texted me i was coming out of a meeting i believe and like walking back to my desk and by the time I got back to my desk, I was, like, looking up CNN and, like, watching it live. And I would just, like, said to my coworkers, I was like, guys, have you heard that Notre Dame's on fire? Yeah. And, and they hadn't heard about it because I, I assume if you texted us right after you got the CNN alert that CNN just got it. Yes, immediately. And that was right after the fire broke out. And just throughout the day, I just kept watching and and reading and seeing what's happening. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, listeners, y'all know how important France is and Paris is to me. And that, you know, I've been there a couple of times. And the first time I ever stepped foot into Notre Dame, it was a feeling unlike anything I've ever experienced. And, you know, getting to see, because I, I grew up really into art. I was an art history major in undergrad. And getting to physically see things that I had studied for so long, that I had dedicated so much of my life to, was mm-hmm. life-changing. And then that space alone is life-changing. And it's beautiful and old. I mean, like, it started yeah. in 1163 is when they started that building. Which is insane so that's um, almost a thousand years ago i know that they started building it and i've never been to paris um but i looked at and kind of pseudo planning a trip to europe later this year with paris being one of my main stops and one of the big reasons was i've always wanted to see notre dame um, I've been to London and Westminster Abbey is was one of my favorite places in yeah. London. It's gorgeous. And I just think I, I think there's something about being in a place that is so old, it has so much history, and yet it's still so relevant. Well, and- it's not a museum. No. Things like still happen there. It's still like such a centerpiece. I love that. And so Notre Dame was one of the places I wanted to see most. Right. And thankfully, you know, it's not as bad as it looked that day. But God. Well, and, you know, they were able to save the two towers in the front. And a lot of it was honestly the roof and the spire, which was heartbreaking seeing that fall. But they're going to be able to rebuild. And some of the best news I heard was, you know, they were in the middle of doing restorations. So they had already removed a lot of the artwork and a lot of the really important things that were in there. And they immediately went in as soon as it was safe after they put the fire out to get more. And, and there are things in Notre Dame, like the, the crown of thorns that is supposedly the one that was on Jesus's head is kept there and it's safe. And, you know, with it being the week before Easter, like it's Holy week Mm -hmm. or, I, I don't know what it's called, but it, it's, you know, Notre Dame is a very important church for Catholics. And so it just, you know, it's it was heartbreaking on a whole nother level like that as well. Oh, yeah. But they're rebuilding. Like, yes, um, millions of euro have already been donated. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, hey, it's heartbreaking, but it's not lost. And just think about all the things that that building has already seen, like World War One and Two. And like, and also a thousand years of other wars. Yeah, I mean, even going back to like 
the Hundred Years' War, yeah. the French Revolution, the Dark Ages. Well, I don't actually know when the Dark Ages were. <laughs> I don't it might have that might have been when it was being built or something. But I don't know. But anyway, anyways, um, yeah, it'll be back. It will. But hey, you guys, this is Hello. Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And yeah, this that's is episode our, fifty. This is episode fifty. Like, whoa, guys, um, we are so close to our one year. So close. But before we fully leave the topic of Paris, I want to... I mean, you know I could talk um, about it forever, so... True. But I want to, you know, shift things to a little bit of a lighter note and talk about this video that one of Britney's friends posted uh, when they were in Paris last year. Wait, so, what? Um, <laughs> it's like one of my favorite videos I've ever seen. And um, so it is Britney's friend... Um, I think it was on Snapchat or something, like, sitting there with a fun filter talking, and she's telling the story. She's like, so, Brittany... Oh, God. Or so, oh. I asked Brittany, um, because she's the one who knows French, <laughs> you know, how do you say, how much does this cost in French? And just <laughs> as serious as could be, Brittany goes, um, I think it's como se dice? <laughs> Okay, I didn't sound like and, that. <laughs> and also, a little bit of relevant or, uh, knowledge. The friend Brittany was saying this to is Hispanic. And <laughs> como se dice is... <laughs> how do you say that in Spanish? It, it is it's nothing to do with money. It is a different language. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's not like it's that far away. But I mean, that's whatever. fair. I have been drinking... All day, you guys. Come on. I was in Paris. I was drinking champagne and... But I can just... I can perfectly picture your face. Yeah, I know you can. Um, I think it's como se dice. (laughs) No, Brittany, it's not. (laughs) It's not. I don't know what it is. I know canto cuesto is how you say how much is this in Spanish or something like that. I don't know how you say it in French. It's combien ça coûte. Okay, so it's not even a cognate so but anyway um one of my favorite videos i've ever seen yeah just you know, by the way whatever it's fine it's fine i have confidence and i am okay with being wrong because sometimes we're all wrong okay you know um <laughs> that's fair okay yeah um but I want to shift gears just a little bit and jump into Patreon. Yes. And most importantly, I want to give a big shout out and a gigantic thank you to Courtney. Courtney is our newest Cabernet Sauvignon convict. Welcome, so, Courtney. Hello, Courtney. Welcome to um, the Patreon community. We still don't have a name for y'all. Um, but welcome, welcome. We are so happy to have you. So excited to hear what your episode idea is. Yes. And just to, I don't know, to say hey and shit. Yes. Courtney, thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, hope you're enjoying the murder minis. We're gonna record another yeah, one today after this we episode. Are. And um, I can tell y'all now, Patreoners, y'all have probably already figured this out, but I definitely found my murder mini that we're gonna record after this from researching my topic for this case. Oh, so it's... I'll mention it in the murder mini and see if y'all are able to figure out what the topic is. But um, yeah, yes, that'll be cool. Um, 
my I'm really excited about the murder mini I picked. It's like one, you know, the ones I do where it's always like super recent stuff. It's a yeah. really good one because it's like Ooh. a cold case that was defrosted. Ooh, defrost. But anyway, uh, yes. So murder minis patreon also make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast platform of choice i mean we're on apple podcast we're on spotify still working on getting on um pandora pandora i was about to say patreon because the i was like "Mm, no we're there yeah (laughs) um but yeah we're on a ton of them google play is another one that's great Uh, just make Mm -hmm. sure and subscribe so you can immediately get those notifications when we release a new episode every tuesday absolutely so um do you have any current news i know we caught up for about five minutes before we started recording because you know we haven't seen each other in like a month now i know it's weird so um i know we already talked about this but i did finally start watching the act and it's so good is it? I stayed up way too late. I, you know, I've been tired for weeks because I stay up way too late, like 1, 2 a.m. And for Same. some fucking reason, I keep doing it. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Go to bed. But I, I watched one episode and I was like, I'll watch one. It's all I need. I, I started a second and I was like, I'll just watch like half of it. You can't just watch half an episode. You no. have to finish it. Since I have seen the HBO documentary and like I know the full story. And that documentary, that's Mommy Dead and Dearest, right? Yes. Okay. Um, Honestly, I don't know which to tell you to watch first because it's kind of like, do you want to know what actually happened? Actually, probably watch the documentary first so you know what actually happened because, I mean, you know, they dramatize and change things up a bit yeah. for TV. But it's so fucking yeah. good. My one issue with this show, and I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched it or seen the documentary, but I am very drawn to, and I've done a lot of research and looked into um, the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Um, my one big issue, and I don't know if I mentioned this when we were talking about the act, um, at the last episode of the episode before, but I don't like that they didn't ask her talk to gypsy rose yeah they didn't ask her for ask her permission before creating the act creating this dramatized fictionalized version because like except they're using her name yeah like it's fictionalized in the way of like the um I imagine like the people VOJ Simpson American Crime Story, where it's like, yes, this actually happened. It's like pseudo documentary, but it still does like it's dramatize a, certain aspects. And it's a docudrama. Kinda... There's a word. For yeah, it. that's the okay. Well, <laughs> um, but yeah. So now she's suing. She's and I think rightfully so. I mean, I she's too. now even more so known across the nation. For this mm-hmm. and she didn't get a say in that and you know you you could say the same of like well she was very infamous and everything because of murdering her mom i definitely think that it's the kind of case that with a different jury it could have easily gone the other way because to me it's a clear case of abuse well and that's honestly with a lot of cases the yeah. jury is the designing factor. Like, that's... I, I mean... Yeah, what you said how, is basically the whole system. But I get what you're saying. I mean, yeah. I get but what like, you're saying. It, but, it's one that's that was not in any way clear-cut. Other than, like, yes, she was involved in her mom's murder. Yeah. But there's just so much gray area. It's not a Absolutely. black and white, cut-and-dry case. And so, that's my one issue with it. 
I still really want to watch it. Lately, though, I have been watching, um, and I know I am very many years behind on this, oh but my I've God. been watching Game of Thrones because you literally I said had... like two episodes ago that you, I'm not going to watch it. I'm, I know. I'm pretty sure I know. you did. Just saying. I know. But again, I watched the first season like four years ago. Wasn't into it. Obviously, lately, everyone has been talking about, you know, the final season is Definitely. starting to come out. But a couple of my coworkers were talking about it. And I was like, okay, fine. I will give it another shot. I'll start season two. Yeah. Also, definitely had to watch a recap video of like what happened in season one because I didn't fucking remember. Absolutely. Um, even watching the video, I was like, I don't remember all of that shit happening. <laughs> um, and then started season two, and it's fine. I'm like five episodes in. I'm waiting to get really invested in the characters because it's starting. There are a couple of them. But again, there's 65,000 characters. They get like 12 seconds of screen time each. So I'm like, how do you build such a connection when they've had enough time over the past season to be like, hello, my name is Susanna of Dragons and I am walking across the desert. Bye. And it's like, that's all the updates you get for them because they have to show (laughs) the other 9,000 characters. You definitely build relationships with them. But I'm really glad you finally started because I cannot wait to talk to you about things. I can't. Well, we will see. Again, I still have like seven more seasons to go. And as with all HBO shows, each episode is like 19 goddamn hours long. And I'm like, I don't even know if I can get through one. Well... I'm about to say this to you, and it doesn't matter because you're the person who doesn't really watch TV and movies, but Game of Thrones is such a feat of television, and it very much blurs the line between television and movies. And, like, in this season and last season, the episodes are, like, 10 to $15 million per episode to do. Which is insane. I think my other big thing, and then we'll change subjects, is it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Oh, very and much And I am so. just scarred from a childhood memory of sitting down and y'all know how i feel about movies of sitting down (laughs) and watching all three lord of the ring director cut movies back to back it was like 14 hours and you didn't have to watch them okay but like i kind of (laughs) did What was I going to go do? Just like leave and stand outside and watch <laughs> y'all watch them? No. And I, I didn't make will it just up, hold asleep. that in me forever. All and right. So, well, yeah. Anyways. So now that you've talked about your trauma as a child from getting to watch TV. So sorry about that getting to watch movies <laughs> um yes what's the topic very traumatic let's let's talk about the topic so the topic for this episode is workplace murders or co-worker murders yes and um disclaimer love all my co-workers same um, was same not thinking of y'all in this at all um yeah no actually part of me was but in the way of like oh my god y'all stay safe yeah, it's um, terrifying. Dude, in my case, oh god, yeah. One thing that I found super shocking that Brittany actually showed me was that homicide is the third leading cause of workplace death behind falling like to a lower level or uh, roadway collisions with other vehicles. Yeah. Number three, the third, which to me is so surprising. Like, because... stop killing your coworkers, yo. Yeah. First off, don't murder your coworkers. Or anyone. Second off, I think it's crazy because, like, 
I would imagine that, like, I don't know, a heart attack or something would be. Like, just some like, some natural cause happening while you have, you're yeah. at the office. Yeah. But that's not a workplace spend, death. It's a death at the workplace. I mean, it, yeah, it is but, in the same way of, like, falling. But I guess killed, I don't know if it would be in the same area because it's, like, killed because of work, is these workplace deaths. I don't know. But yeah. I also think it's surprising that, like, you don't hear about it more often. I, I mean, know. people spend a third of their lives at work, basically. Yeah. And yet, I mean, knock on wood, I have never worked at a place where, like, my coworker just died next to me. But yeah. people die all the time. And I just can't imagine the trauma of that happening to, like, your coworker next to you at the office or something. I know. So anyway, the topic is... Workplace murders, it's going to get real fucked up, y'all. Uh, Yes, it absolutely will. So, um, but before I jump into my case, because I definitely go first this week. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about my wine. So, I'm really excited about this wine. It is the 2018 Chateau Saint-Michel Rosé. Oh, I love Chateau Saint-Michel. Oh, same. Um, And we've definitely talked about them before i think we did mm-hmm. one of their reds in an earlier episode or maybe we ha- i don't know we don't- it was i think it was one of their reds i think so uh but that's the winery that we visited when i went to visit tyler in washington when he lived in seattle and mm-hmm. they're so well known i mean chateau saint michel has phenomenal wines you can find them all over the country they oh, have yeah. like this um like Indian the Indian Wells yes Indian Wells cab is phenomenal I had that with mama mm-hmm. the other day or I say the other day it was like a couple months ago but um this <laughs> you both do that whatever you, I'm... you will both be like oh well the other day well it was 19 years ago but <laughs> but it oh, felt like the other okay. day <laughs> I guess technically it is an other day but no. Not generally the use of the phrase. Um, so this rosé, it's dry, crisp, and elegant. And it's this light pink hue. It is, however, a little bit darker than some of the blush French rosés that, you know, I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, that have, like, a very light pink color. This one is a little darker, but it's not, like, white sin. Like, we're not going yeah. that pink. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super refreshing. And offers bright aromas of watermelon, raspberry with wild strawberries, and a bit of a citrus zest and hints of melon. I know mm-hmm. that sounds insanely sweet. It's not. It's it's just this like very soft, flavorful with like this long crisp finish at the end. Mm-hmm. It's oh, I just spoiled it. I've had this wine. I bought two bottles and couldn't help myself cuz it's brand new. <laughs> I just realized <laughs> How you're talking I... about like no it actually tastes like this and i'm like mm, how do you know yeah okay tyler was giving me this look on the camera yes i tried this wine before this moment but guys it's so fucking good trust me trust okay. me so i'm going to go ahead and open this it's a screw top so it'll be really quick um nice which i love so what wine did you pick so my wine I'm actually nervous about it now. Why? Um, because y'all know how I feel. Like, I'm not a sweet wine person. And I didn't think this one was going to be sweet until I started researching it. Like, I bought the bottle. And you're oh. going to, I'm going to tell you the name of it. And you're going to be like, really? 
you didn't think that was going to be sweet. And I'm telling you, I read the back to make sure and nothing about it said sweet. But now I'm worried because one of the reviews was like, you'll never want to go back to dry wine after this. And I'm like, oh, God. Mine is the sweet bitch Pinot Grigio. Okay. And I know, again, I know you're thinking, Tyler, it's literally called sweet bitch. Why would you not think it's sweet? Why would it not be? And my thought was, because again, I got it, looked at the back, read it, nothing about it says sweet. I was like, oh, Maybe that's just the name of the winery it comes from, and maybe they got their start with Moscato or White Zinn or something sweet, and then have branched out to make more. Maybe. Um, Because the back of this says, A combination of fragrant almond and melon aromas with a fresh acidity. The flavors are interwoven with ripe pear and juicy lemon. So again, I'm thinking... I mean, it sounds like a Pinot Grigio. Yeah, but it is an Italian wine. It is... It looks green. Yeah, it is. It's a little little greener. uh, More of like a pale straw, almost like dying grass color, where it's like still kind of green, but moving a little bit of it. And then there's just a little, little... Little dog on the back, or a wolf, or something. Oh my but, uh, god! Yeah, because it's a, it's a bitch. Oh, that makes more <laughs> sense. But um, yeah. So a smooth and fruity Pinot Grigio. But reading reviews online, uh, it said this Pinot Grigio is packed with fruit flavors from mango and peach to pineapple and banana. Ew. Ew. It is a full body wine with honey and cream that is smooth and fruity with honey and cream. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of honey and cream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that definitely copied twice. Uh, so, honey and cream. It has honey and cream and honey and cream. Which sounds uh, really sweet. Smooth and fruity with a long finish that is fruity and clean. And <laughs> then it said. After this, you'll never go back to dry Pinot Grigio. So I'm like, oh shit, what have I done? But mine is a screw top. Yes. All right. And um, I mean, it smells like a Pinot Grigio. Oh yeah, that is like yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Well. Which and yeah, you might be like, oh, I thought they always bitch on Pinot Grigio and don't want it. I mean, well, I don't. Mostly that's Brittany, and I wanted to <laughs> switch things up, and I might have made a horrible mistake. Um. Okay. Well. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. So good, you guys. This rosé. If you see it in the stores, please go grab it. I don't know how long it's going to be around, but I'm really excited and. Y'all know I'm really picky with my rosé. I normally drink French, and this one's Columbia Valley, but damn, love it. What is yours? Your face is telling me things. Well, I'm trying to decide if it's sweet or not, because I still don't know, and I've taken two drinks now. I mean, if it is, it's not cloyingly sweet, like a um, a Moscato, which is nice. That's good. It definitely... I wouldn't even call it, like, a semi-sweet. It's kind of sweet in the way that, like, a dry cider is still a little sweet. Oh. It's kind of like, kind of like that, where it's like, it does have sugar in it, but I would not call it a sweet wine. It's not bad. It definitely okay. would be a perfect wine if you're making some, like, white wine peach, peach sangria. Oh my god, with yes. With, like, you know, a little bit of Malibu, some fresh peaches, this wine. 
And that would be wonderful. And some add some bubbles, add some prosecco into that. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Always add or, bubbles. Or um, yeah, you could always do some like coconut Lacroix or something. I don't know. I'm imagining yeah. like a very fun tropical. So what it sounds like to me is that you're going to be getting this a lot this summer to be making some white sangria, which sounds amazing. I have a cu- I have a pool right outside my window that I look at. Shit, I yeah, have you do. two cups that float in water, so I'm thinking those are going to be sangria cups. Hey, and those are from and me. They are. But yeah, honestly, for a Pinot Grigio, which usually isn't my palate, and for something that is technically on the sweeter side, it's pretty good. I'm it, yeah. impressed. It doesn't have that, like, bright erupting freshness of, like, a Sauvignon Blanc, but absolutely. It's a solid white wine. Well, you know, I've always been too nervous to buy the Sweet Bitch wines. Also, because the one you see a lot is Sweet Red, and I'm like, I don't fucking yeah. think so. See, again, that was kind of... And I I still think that's probably... I mean, this is sweeter than a typical Pinot Grigio. I don't know. Also, I don't know what the hell they're talking about cream. I only get the honey, I get like the peach, pineapple, that kind of like very juicy fruit. Yeah. I don't get no cream. <laughs> and it it talked a lot. It was honey and cream, honey and cream. <laughs> no, or maybe that was me pasting this incorrectly, but honey and cream without the cream. So, so honey. Yeah. All right. Well, we have our wines. We have our topic. We have our Notre Dame backstory. Notre Dame. Yes. Uh, what is your case? Yes. So I found a few different cases that I wanted to do for this one, which is, yeah, kind of disturbing that I was like two that I was like, oh my God, yes. But I ended up dwindling it down to this one. So I did the same thing, which is how I got my murder mini. Oh, (laughs) I had, I was stuck between two and was like, well, guess I'll do this one. one. But okay, so tell me about the one that you chose yes. for so, today's episode. <laughs> I did the University of Alabama in Huntsville shooting. Oh, I don't think I know of this. Yes. So the University of Alabama in Huntsville, it is not the one you're thinking about. Um, that yeah. that Bama is in Tuscaloosa. So yeah. this one, however, it is one of the nation's premier research universities, and it is a public university. Oh. It's in, like, the northern part of Alabama, and, like, almost touching the Tennessee border is where Huntsville oh, is. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And they have about 10,000 students currently enrolled. So it's their so largest... It's a good size. Yeah, it's yeah. their largest number that they've ever had, and that's, like, current numbers. But they have, like, 90 different degree programs um, for undergraduate and graduate level. Mm -hmm. And they've got, like, a pretty big campus. It's 505 acres. It includes 16 high-tech research centers, labs responsible for $99 million in annual research expenditures. It's, like, a shit ton of money. Yeah. Um, And that serves as the anchor for the second largest research park in the nation. Oh, probably after, I assume there's probably a big-ass one in the Raleigh-Durham area, or also known as the Research Triangle. Yeah, I didn't know that, but sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where, like, Duke, uh, UNC, Chapel Hill... You know what I think of when I think of Durham? What? The Staircase Murder. Oh, yeah. Hmm, I don't. I think about my friend I studied abroad with who went to UNC Chapel Hill. Hi, if you listen. Before I forget, like, for some reason I keep doing uh my my sources i use the university of alabama and huntsville's website 
Wikipedia, and the New York Times. Oh, okay. So, Amy Bishop was a biology professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and on February 12, 2010, she was teaching her anatomy and neurosciences class, and a student said, you know, everything seemed pretty normal, like nothing's going on, nothing's weird. And after she was done teaching for the day, she attended a biology department faculty meeting, and it was located in room 369 on the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology, which is where all of the UAH biology and math departments were held. So this is just... I'm just imagining this superimposed over a map of OU, by the way. Oh, yeah, literally all I pictured the whole time I was I'm like, oh, so they're basically in, like, the Physical Science Center or whatever. (laughs) Basically. So there were about 12 or 13 people who attended the meeting on this afternoon. And, I mean, this is just your regular run-of-the-mill faculty meeting. This is nothing different. Mm -hmm. So Bishop goes in, she takes her seat quietly, and she's just listening to the various updates and discussion topics, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, what's happening? After the meeting had been going on for about a half hour or 40 minutes or so, at around 4 p.m., Bishop got up suddenly and pulled out a Rugger P95 9mm handgun. Oh! She started shooting at each of the other faculty members in the meeting. Oh, I thought she was gonna be the victim. Nope. She's not. Okay. She starts with the coworkers closest to her, and she like goes down the row, shooting at them in the head. Fuck. And according to one of the survivors, Deborah Morarity, uh, who was the dean of the university's grad program and professor of biochemistry, she said that this was not random shooting around the room. It was execution yeah. style. She was going Jesus. backs of their heads like one, 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 one. Those who were shot were on the side of this big oval table that was being used during the meeting. And there are five other faculty members that were on the other side of the table. They like immediately dropped to the floor. After Bishop fired several rounds, Deborah said that she pointed the gun at her. So at Deborah, pulls Mm -hmm. the trigger, but only her to click. The gun had either jammed or she ran out of ammunition. Oh my God. Uh, She described Bishop appearing, you know, initially she was angry during this whole incident, but then after the weapon malfunctioned, she just seemed like really perplexed, like really confused. Another one of the survivors, who was an associate professor, Joseph Ng, said Deborah attempted to stop Bishop by approaching her and asking her to stop shooting. Mm -hmm. Deborah, at the same time, was also helping the other survivors push Bishop from the room and block the door. So they're just trying yeah. to get her out of there. Joseph said Deborah is probably the one who saved everyone's lives because she initiated this rush to get Bishop out of the room. Yeah. In all, three faculty members were killed and three others were injured. Those who were um, deceased is Gopi Podila, the chairman of the biology department, Maria Ragland David, who is an associate professor of biology, Adriel D. Johnson Sr., another associate professor of biology, and those who were injured, Louis Rogelio Cruz Vera, who is a biology professor, Joseph G. Leahy, another biology professor, and Stephanie Monticillo, who is a staff assistant. Only a few students were present in the building at the time of the shooting, and thankfully none of them were harmed. And a memorial service was then held on campus on February 19th, um, so a few days after the shooting, and 3,000 people were in attendance. Shit. 
Authorities were obviously immediately called. And they go into the building and they're looking around. And the suspected murder weapon, the 9mm handgun, was later found Mm -hmm. in the bathroom on the second floor of the building. Why would she try to get rid of it? I mean, they there were survivors. People like it's known who did it. Right. I don't know. I mean, she did not have a permit to carry a concealed weapon, and mm-hmm. maybe she just didn't want to get caught with it. I I don't know. Um, she was, however, arrested just a few minutes later outside the building, so she was still around. I always think it's so interesting in these cases in general. It's either a case of not always, but it's oftentimes either a case of. We know exactly who did it. We have no idea why. Yeah. Or we know exactly why, but we have no idea who did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very rarely is it either a complete total mystery or complete and, you know, open shut. Like, oh, that's who and that's why. Boom. Well, the complete open shut, like, yeah, that that's rare. And also, yeah. if you have I, I mean, good... you do see a lot of cases that it's just like, we have literally no fucking idea. Yeah, it's true. On anything. But I guess, I mean, in general, murder's not open shut. No, it's generally not. Shortly after she was arrested, she was quoted saying, it didn't happen, there's no way. And then they asked her about the deaths of her colleagues, and she replied, there's no way, they're still alive. So she's going through, like, this denial. Well, yeah, like a mental break or something. Right. Police interviewed her husband, James Anderson, Um, after the incident and determined that she'd called him to come pick her up after the shooting they didn't end up charging him with any type of crime because uh, i mean he didn't get there he didn't pick her up she was arrested yeah he revealed that his wife had borrowed the gun used in the shooting and that he had been the one to escort her to an indoor shooting range in the weeks prior to the incident but that's not you know, saying he's guilty of anything. They went to a shooting range together. I mean, that's her husband. She's, I mean, if she said, you know, I'd like, you have a gun. I'd like to learn how to shoot it just in case. Mm -hmm. Sure. Let's go to a shooting. Like, let's be responsible adults. I'll teach you. Let's go to a shooting range. Yeah, exactly. Well, shortly after her arrest, people at the university's biology department expressed concern to the police that she booby trapped the science building with a herpes bomb which was intended to spread the virus. Oh. And, you know, they suspected this because she had previously worked with the herpes virus while completing her postdoctoral studies and wrote a novel describing the spread of a virus similar to herpes throughout the world, causing pregnant women to miscarry. So these two things that she'd done in her personal life, her research, and then also she was an aspiring writer, made them really concerned that those could be around the building. Yeah. But police had already searched the premises, and they only found the handgun. There were no booby traps that they could find. But the fact that her colleagues were anxious about this possibility of the booby traps, it just shows that those that knew Bishop knew that she could go to great lengths to retaliate against those she felt had wronged her. So she was suspended without pay retroactively on the day of the attack. And on February 26th, in just a one paragraph letter, she was fired. God, imagining being that HR, that payroll person, being like, well, let me backdate her pay on her paycheck. Like, you know, she'll still get it. I guess that's the day when she murdered all the people. So she won't get paid that day. But the days, like, what? I know. How fucking weird 
must it be to do your clerical or just your average like work duties or like whatever well, but you know you're backdating someone's pay okay but you're backdating it because they shot a bunch of people in the building well and what really surprises me is that she didn't get her letter or they didn't write the letter firing her until the 26th and this happened on the 12th i mean and i mean i guess i get it it's paperwork and she hasn't gone to trial yet at this point but they st- the yeah. freaking dean is the one who helped save the people in the room yeah. like there was just, no denying that this happened yeah i don't know i think the juxtaposition of like i think that's one of the things that's so crazy about workplace murders it's the juxtaposition of something so mundane maybe that's not the right but just every day it's work it's it's you know what you do five five days a week or whatever juxtaposed with murder i know and the idea of like I mean, after this, when was the next meeting held in that conference room? I know. Well, and it's like work is somewhere that we want to feel safe, obviously. I mean, we want to feel safe everywhere. But your work and your home, you really want to feel safe because that's where you spend the majority Mm -hmm. of your time. And when things like this happen, it's no longer a safe space. This is so very reflective of our home invasions from last episode. Where it's it like is. your safe space now turns into the place that to you is not safe at all. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about how one of my like great fears is a shooting or something happening at work Yeah, to the point where I'm like, not at, I don't say at all times prepared, but you know, it's pretty constantly in the back of my mind. Like, what would I do? Yes. You have to have a game plan. It but, sucks. It's just horrifying. It's horrifying. It is. So a little bit of a background on Amy and why the fuck did she do this? So she was 44 at the time of the shooting, married to James Anderson and the mother of four. She had joined the faculty of the Department of Biological Sciences at UAH as an assistant professor in 2013 and was teaching five courses prior to the shooting. Mm-hmm. She previously, before she worked at UAH, was an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. According, mm. according to a friend and uh, fellow member of, of a writing group in Massachusetts, which is where she was from, Bishop mm-hmm. had written three unpublished novels. One of these novels featured a woman scientist working to defeat the potential pandemic virus and struggling with suicidal thoughts at the threat of not mm-hmm. earning tenure. These novels reportedly reveal a deep preoccupation with the concept of deliverance from sin. And Mm -hmm. she was a member of the Hamilton Writers Group while living in Ipswich, Massachusetts in the late 1990s. And Mm -hmm. she was said to believe that writing would be her ticket out of academia. So writing seems to be an area where she could potentially be sharing her personal desires and thoughts yeah. through these I mean, stories. But honestly, the the book idea, I, I'd probably read that. Yeah, it's not a bad I idea. Mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad that's plot. scary. She had a literary agent, but again, like I said, she hadn't published any things. And yeah. members of this club that she was in said she would frequently cite her Harvard degree and family ties to Irving to boost her credential as a serious writer. But clearly, yeah. she's not. She has nothing published. Yeah. Um, 
Not that that's what makes you serious. It's just like her family name wasn't helping that out. So obviously maybe she wasn't as good as she thought. Yeah. Another member described Bishop as smart but abrasive in her interactions with the other members and that she seemed to feel like very entitled to praise. So she just seems like a very highly intelligent, highly opinionated person. Yeah. Several colleagues of Bishop's had expressed concern over her behavior prior to the shooting incident, and her life seemed to veer wildly between moments of cult fury and scientific brilliance, between rage at sights she was perceiving and then empathy for her students. So she's all over the place, and people are seeing this. Um, She was described as interrupting meetings with bizarre tangents, left field kind of things, things that were strange and very notably crazy. Yeah. One of her colleagues was a member of her tenure review committee and her tenure was denied. This was a big problem to Bishop. Yeah. After she was denied, she learned that this colleague had referred to her as crazy And so she files a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, obviously. Yeah. And she is alleging sex discrimination. She cited... That's fair. Yeah. 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 I mean, she cited the professor's remark to be used as possible evidence in the case. But the professor who called her crazy was given the opportunity to back off of the claim or say it was just some flippant remark. But he didn't. And he said, I said she was crazy multiple times and I stand by that. This woman has a pattern of erratic behavior. She did things that weren't normal. She was out of touch with reality. So he he stood behind it. But what he did in her filing that, I agree. That's the steps that you would take. Because that is something that so often men will say to disregard women. Like, oh, she's just crazy. I know. Exactly. So I'm like, no, I totally understand her. But I also understand... His reasoning could have picked better better words. Yes, he could have. However, she was reportedly a pretty poor instructor and unpopular among her students. She dismissed several graduate students from her lab and others got transfers out. So no one wanted to be in her class. Oh. And in 2009, several students said they complained to administrators about Bishop on at least three occasions, saying that she was ineffective in the classroom And she had some odd, unsettling ways. So this is not saying she was denied tenure because she was quote unquote crazy because this one professor said it. Clearly she doesn't have a good She's also not a great professor. With students, yeah. Yeah. Um, There was even a- I mean, it sounds like she's an incredible researcher, but as far as a teacher and professor, no. No. And- there was even a petition signed by dozens of students and sent to the par- the department head, but these complaints never resulted in any classroom changes. Yeah. So. That's not surprising. Right. Um, after she was denied tenure in March 2009, she was not expecting to have her teaching contract renewed after March 2010. So she's looking at having one year left of being a professor. Yeah. She appealed the decision to the university's administration, and without reviewing the content of the tenure application, they determined that the process was carried out accordingly to policy, and they denied her appeal. Oh, shit. How can they know that without opening it? Well, I'm about to go into exactly why, because that is, uh, you're right, like, they didn't even open it. How do they know? Well, this routine faculty meeting that 
she opened fire in was unrelated to her tenure. And Mm -hmm. her husband, James, he said the denial of her tenure had been an issue. And in recent months, he described that the tenure process was very long and basically hard fought. And it was his understanding that she exceeded the qualifications for tenure and that she was distressed at the likelihood of losing her position. Obviously, I get it. She's like, what the fuck? I thought I was going to be here forever. Now I'm looking at one more year. Oh, yeah. So Bishop feels like the them dismissing her appeal was wrong and being denied tenure was wrong. Her husband's backing her up. And so they hired a lawyer. And the lawyer kept finding one problem after another with the process that UAH was doing for, like, the tenure evaluation. But yeah. there was one big point of dispute, you know, whether two of her papers had been published in time to count towards tenure. Bishop, who seemed to give more emphasis to obtaining patents and doing that type of research rather than publishing papers, had reportedly Mm -hmm. received several warnings that she needed to publish more to receive tenure. And so this is something that she had been told over and over. And then I guess like at the 11th hour, she publishes two more papers, but but they're trying to determine if they even count towards it. But the fact of the matter is, is it just does like, like we were saying, it doesn't sound like she's a good professor. Like there's a lot of reasons she didn't get it. And she just doesn't agree with that. She doesn't feel like that is correct at all. This is not the first time that Bishop had had encounters with law enforcement. Oh, she had had previous interactions due to an outburst um, or a violent act on her part. However, in each of these instances, she remained unscathed, and the incidents did not come up to the attention of the UAH administration or other employees. So all of these former things, they didn't know when they hired her. Um, Which, I mean, I guess, like, you do a background check when you get hired, but at what point is your work notified? Like, if I went out and robbed a bank, would the police send an email to my company? Like, what? Well, the thing is, I'm not talking prior incidents of the time she was employed by UAH. I'm talking before they employed her. Oh, not while she... Okay, okay, okay. So, one of these happened when Bishop was 21 years old, and she fatally shot her 18-year-old brother, Seth. Oh, Fuck. On December 6th, 1986, at their home in Braintree, Massachusetts. So. Shit. Bishop fired two shots from a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, one into her bedroom wall, and then one into her brother's chest while they were in the kitchen with their mom. Fuck. This ended up putting a gaping hole in his left chest and tearing open his aorta. Yeah. I mean, it's a fucking shotgun. Yeah, those are messy. Like if you're literally yeah. wanting to just like fuck it up, well, it's they you pull you pull the trigger once and it essentially fires a hundred bullets. Yeah, yeah, like oh Jesus. So she later points this weapon at a moving vehicle, and you know she's trying to get into the vehicle. She in- eventually went to like a car dealership to trade in the gun for a car and she was saying that her husband was after her and she had to get away because he was going to kill her but she has a gun i know so the death of her brother was classified as an accident by the braintree police in statements said by both amy and her mother judy describing this as accidental amy had had an argument with her dad went upstairs to her room and would later tell the police that she decided to load her father's shotgun 
She wanted to learn how it worked because there'd been a break-in in the house not long before. And she'd never used a shotgun before. Okay. So she's sitting in a room, loads the shotgun, and a blast went off. Police did later find evidence that she tried to conceal the results of a blast using, like, a band-aid tin and a book cover to hide the holes in the wall. Okay. So she's carrying the shotgun. She goes down the stairs to the kitchen where her brother and her mom were standing. Did they not hear this shotgun blast? I honestly don't even know. So her mom later said, I was standing at the kitchen sink and Seth was standing by the the stove. Amy said, I have a shell in the gun and I don't know how to unload it. I told Amy not to point the gun on anybody. Amy turned toward her brother and the gun fired, hitting him. Amy then ran out of the house with the shotgun. Honestly, I can understand if all of this is true. I can see how it would be accidental and stuff. Yes. And I can see how it could all be true so far. Yes. So when police found the shotgun, it had a live round in the chamber. So this would mean that Bishop would have had to like rack the side of the weapon after shooting her brother to simultaneously eject the spent shell and reload the chamber. So she did know how to. And also she reloaded it. Yes. So Hmm. after just a brief inquiry into the incident by the state police in 1986, and they reported it in 87, they repeated the Braintree Police Department's initial assessment that the shooting was accidental and no files were ever charged. However, after the UAH shooting, this incident was being relooked at. I mean, yeah. Um, However... Detailed reports of the shooting had disappeared by 1988. Disappeared? The reports were gone. Braintree Police Chief Paul Frazier uh, said on February 13th, so literally like the day after the shooting, the reports were gone and removed from the files. But Frazier never believed the incident was an accident. He thinks it was a fix because Judy, Bishop's mom, was friends with then-police chief John Polio, who ordered Bishop's release. Apparently, she was very supportive of him politically and in the community, and he thinks some type of fix happened. corrupt officials. I know, I know. Corrupt motherfuckers. This reminds me of the shit that went down when we did our college town murders. Um, uh, I know, the one in Norman, my case. Yeah, the one in Norman that... Fucking lover's lane shooting. God. Fucking corrupt assholes. I know. But the good thing is, on February 16th, Braintree officials announced that the files previously declared missing had been located, and they turned them over to the Norfolk County prosecutors. So, Norfolk County District Attorney William Keating- Where the fuck did they find them? You know? They're like, oh, you mean these? Like, oh, sorry, I've had those in the bottom drawer since 87. I just don't clean out my desk really that much. I'm really bad at filing things. I just, you know what? Honestly, I need to Marie Kondo my life. And I get that now. And this is is really showing me that I need to do that. So, (laughs) Norfolk County District Attorney William Keating concluded that Based on these files, probable cause existed in 86 to arrest and charge Amy Bishop for the crime she committed I mean, yeah. after she fled the house. Like, not necessarily for killing her brother, but what she did after. Running out of the house still with the gun, holding it out of car, trying to steal the car, holding it up at the people at the car dealership, trying to trade it for a car. Like, 
That yeah. was enough to convict her of something. Yeah. She could have been charged with assault with a dangerous weapon, carrying a dangerous yeah. weapon, and unlawful possession of ammunition. So an huh. inquest was opened on June 16th, 2010, and she was charged with first degree murder in her brother's death nearly 24 years after his shooting. Oh, shit. The protagonist of the first of Bishop's unpublished novels is a woman who, as a child, attempted to frighten a friend after an argument, but accidentally killed the friend's brother. No, that's not suspicious at all. I don't even know why you brought that up. I know. It was speculated that Bishop had meant to frighten or shoot her father with the shotgun after an argument that the two of them had had and mistook her brother for him. Fuck. So that's the first thing on Bishop's things that happened in the past that uh, she somehow became unscathed, I I guess, up until this point. God. And, And we're still, we're still not even to like the legal proceedings for her fucking shooting up at the college. Nope. Um, I have... Not shooting up like a heroin addict, shooting up like a murderer. Yes. So I have two more incidences of her somehow getting away with things. Um, Yeah. In 1994, she and her husband were questioned regarding a letter bomb incident involving a doctor at a facility where she had previously been employed. So... What the shit? Paul Rosenberg a Harvard Medical School professor and physician at Children's Hospital Boston, received a package containing two pipe bombs, which thankfully failed to explode. Rosenberg was Bishop's supervisor at the Children's Hospital Neurology Lab, and Bishop had allegedly been concerned about receiving a negative evaluation from him and reportedly had been in a dispute. She ended up resigning from her position at the hospital. Oh, so is that why she left Harvard? Yep. Okay. And lastly, in 2002, she was charged with assault after striking a woman in the head during a dispute at a restaurant, but she was not convicted. She had punched a woman for receiving the last booster seat. And so she like goes over to this woman's table demanding that she gives her the booster seat. The woman's like, fuck no. And she punches her. Honestly, as a former server and former bartender... I've seen a lot worse on, like, a random Tuesday, so... I believe it. Um, but Bishop ended up... You haven't seen the the gaping maw of hell until you've seen $5 spaghetti and meatball night. I believe it's it, bad. It just... Anyways. <laughs> back to redirecting from my traumas. To Bishop. Um, yeah. She ended up just getting probation for this incident. So... Okay. The big question, and I know it's been itching at you, is like, why didn't UAH know about any of this? Uh, yeah. Well, one of the reasons on the job application, it says, have you ever been convicted of an offense other than a minor traffic violation? Amy, Amy, who took this tenure track position in 2003, so after all three of these things had happened, she said no. And technically... She wasn't lying. No, because she had never been convicted. No, of any of these. She was never charged in her brother's death. And even though she was sentenced to probation for this IHOP incident, she was never found guilty. It was an IHOP? That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it was in an IHOP. Um, She was never found guilty. And then when it came to the pipe bombs, she and her husband were questioned in connection to them in 1993. 
but nothing ever happened. Like that was it. They yeah, were just I mean, questioned. lots of people are questioned in lots of events they had nothing to do with. So that yeah. So and this is kind of scary. Huh. How and, and granted, I will say, Bishop was the type of person that would embellish her resume. Like she was lying. There were lots of parts of her life where she was lying. And like I said, technically, she didn't lie. But it's yeah. because she answered it in the way that she did. She was one of those type of people that's like, well, no, I wasn't. Technically, no. I don't have to bring I this haven't. up at all. I've never been convicted of a damn thing. So I don't know. I also imagine she's like a sultry f- 50s woman. <laughs> So, I mean, it's real shitty, but it's kind of scary because that's how people answer these things. And and it's true, a background check wouldn't have found anything. Well, yeah. would it have found the probation? I mean, so... I don't know how background it, checks work. Well, it depends. So I can actually speak from experience to this. Because you, um, you know, all the things you did that have come up on your background check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. No, because I used to do background checks. Um, I work in HR, um, it depends. Sometimes things like that will show up because most companies outsource their background checks. It, that is true. And another company does it. So it depends. I mean, some of them are just looking for convictions. And if nothing turns up, it turns up clean. I have previously gone like deeper and gone to look at that, like court records and stuff for background checks. And so if they had done that... They would have they, found you know, They something. could have looked at the public court records and seen, you know, this arrest offense and seen this. But if they aren't found, having, having been found guilty, I don't know if it would have made a difference. Right. Because lots of people do lots of things that get them probation. It's true. And, a and lot of someone getting into things. a fight at a restaurant is probably not going to seem that big of a deal. No. And especially so, if they don't have all the details of what exactly happened. Yeah. I mean, you could have, because if they had asked, it could have been one of those things that like, you know, she tells the university like, oh, yes, you know, there was an incident. Um, I had a woman, she said something about my kids and I lost my temper. Um, it was huge mistake and I very much regret it. Um, but I did serve probation from it you know, or some story like that where it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I you know, know that's that's Where not gonna sounds... really raise that might raise a yellow flag but surely not a red flag and if that's the only thing then yeah if it's like that but also look at her impressive resume her harvard research her teaching stuff then it's like well yeah and she's great candidate like you know people make mistakes we're not gonna look at that well and i didn't say it but like she and her husband invent invented something that i didn't understand because it was way too sciencey and like so she was the sun <laughs> she invented the sun so she was impressive but also yeah. like i said she was full of shit so there you go well they make laxatives for that now don't they <laughs> they do i still stand behind like i think she was highly intelligent but i think she was mm-hmm. very disturbed so yeah no i agree following the alabama shooting she was charged with one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder one count I don't know why. Her lawyer was saying that she remembers nothing of the shootings and that he planned to have her evaluated by psychiatrist. You know, she was denying any memory of any action she took. So the police confiscated her computer, the family van, 
and a large binder containing documents pertaining to this, like, tenure battle with the lawyer and, like, all of that stuff that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And at this time, while she's awaiting trial, she was placed in jail without bail. God, because if they find anything that she wrote or was recorded her saying, like, I'm going to fucking kill those bastards for denying me this or whatever. I mean, like, boom. Done. Yeah. So on June 18th, two days after she was indicted for the murder of her brother um, Mm -hmm. in the case that had been reopened. she And this is like four months after the shooting itself. Yes. Um, She attempted suicide in the Huntsville jail. God. She didn't die. You know, they saved her. And she she had been on suicide watch and I'm sure continued to be on it after this incident. Oh, yeah. And in September 2011, she pleaded not guilty by means of insanity. In 2012, one of the spouses of one of the murdered researchers wrote a letter to the judge that was presiding over Bishop's case. And in the letter, the writer indicated that the researcher's family had greatly suffered from the loss due to Bishop's actions, but that the family itself did not see any way how they would benefit from the loss of another life. Wow. So... In a response to this letter, Bishop's lawyers offered to change her plea to guilty in exchange for the prosecution to not seek the death penalty. When Chief Prosecutor Robert Boussard got this letter, he contacted and learned from the nine survivors that none of them wanted the death sentence for Bishop. Not a single one. Wow. And... That's amazing. It is. Um, And really surprising. You know, I will say... I love that this prosecutor reached out and was like, okay, I've got a yeah. letter that's showing the opinion of one. Let's see how the other nine feel. Um, you know, yeah. he calls them and they're like, no, we we don't want to give her the death penalty. And Yeah, we don't want another death to come up from this. Exactly. And because of that, yeah. he did not seek the death penalty. And because of that, <laughs> Bishop changed her plea to guilty. So on September 24th, 2012, Bishop was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And when it came to the conviction of her brother's death, the Norfolk County declined to seek extradition because as Massachusetts does not have the death penalty and her, you know, she had already been sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. They felt that Mm -hmm. that was sufficient. And yeah. And I guess in that case, there's a different dynamic with the family seeking justice because it's also her family. Well, so, and her mom is the one that said it was an accident. Yeah. I don't know if her father was still around at this time, mm-hmm. um, but it's one of those things that, like, I get it. I get why they did this because mm-hmm. of everything we just said. But yeah. also, if something ever happens and she gets out, like, then I guess they could probably do something and get her back yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, like, because they haven't... They haven't charged her, so if something happened... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she could be extradited then. So they have that in their back pocket if they ever, I guess, need to use it. But... Yeah. um, So that is the University of Alabama and Huntsville shooting, which... Fuck. ...was really crazy to learn about. I mean, it's happened nine years ago, but yeah. And apparently in 2015 was the first time she ever apologized really? and said sorry for what she did. Um, I didn't huh. dive into research because, again, I'm like, okay, you said you're sorry. I don't really care. Um, yeah. Not gonna. But usually, I mean, and 
this is but that also more like or less that is also her almost really admitting the guilt and that she did it yeah so okay that is my crazy case yeah. what case do you have um I, again shit well mine is the case of the murders of allison parker and adam ward also known as the wdbj shootings oh is this the news one Yep. Oh my god. Okay. I don't know all the details to this, but holy shit. This is one that I remember when it happened, and I'll go into more detail later, but um, yeah, I remember this one very clearly. So the sources that I used um, were CNN. I leaned very heavily on an article that they wrote oh, and yeah. Wikipedia. Um, I Basically, I used Wikipedia for going into the background of the killer. You know... Basically everything else is CNN. So, you know when you're reading Wikipedia and you look at other sources, sometimes you can mm-hmm. tell that the language is, like, the same. So you know whoever yeah. put it on Wikipedia basically just took that article and put it on there and cited it. Yeah. But then it's sometimes that Wikipedia is the only place you can find that information. And you're like, this sounds legit. I think it's legit. I hope it's legit. But it's the only place you can fucking find it. Where do people get that information? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when it's usually cited, citation needed. No, I know. But okay, like, yeah. Oh, sure. I, You know, I was, you can go down to the end of the page, look at it, where everything's from. But sometimes it still sounds legit and I still use it. Oh, I mean, same. And for the most part, most things are cited and they might be reworded so that it the entire article doesn't sound like, this piece was, this sentence was written by someone. This sentence was written by someone else. Well, so it's like more cohesive. I totally get that considering that's how I do our research. Same. So. So I, I imagine it's a similar process. Yeah. But yeah. So let me jump into this just fucking tragic story. Okay. So when Allison Parker left for work on August 26th, 2015, There were two balloons and a bottle of wine in her back seat. The balloons had congratulations written on them, and they were for her morning producer, Melissa Ott. It was Melissa's last day at WDBJ, the news station that they both worked at. So, Allison Parker, who, she was 24 at the time, she's a morning reporter at the Roanoke, Virginia TV station, and she normally woke up at about 1.30 a.m., But on this day, her boyfriend, Chris Hurst, kissed her good morning at 1 a.m. She had an extra long drive ahead of her because her assignment today was a local tourist attraction, Smith Mountain Lake. This day was special because the WDBJ staff, they were all going to toast Ott. You know, again, it was her last day and they had planned like a big work party. So Parker had her boyfriend pick up balloons and wine at the supermarket after his 11 p.m. anchor shift at the station ended. So her boyfriend, Chris, uh, was the night anchor and she was the morning anchor. Mm -hmm. WDBJ was where both of them fell in love. Their work schedules seemed completely incompatible. Yeah, they do. But they found time wherever they could, and that was how their relationship began that was how they fell in love allison said good night to chris you know he he just got off work 
while she's going to work. She said goodnight to him while he's going to bed, and she got in her car. Chris went to bed while Allison stopped by at the news office. She she surprised Melissa with the balloons, but they both knew that the like real celebration, the actual like party thing would be later that morning after the 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. newscasts because before then Melissa is busy retra- training her replacement. So she's like, "We'll celebrate after we're done with work today." So just like Allison, Melissa had also fallen in love and found someone who worked at the news station. She was engaged to 27-year-old Adam Ward. Yeah. And he was the photojournalist who ran Allison's live shots in the mornings, who was basically her cameraman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And these assignments are mostly features. They're very morning news. So back to school events, town festivals, local resident profiles. I mean, the, the day before all of this, the two of them had covered an upcoming fundraiser at the zoo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's morning news it's stuff. It's fun but... things. Things that just like yeah. are exciting to listen to in the morning. I get that. You don't want the heavy shit as you start your day. Oh, no. But they all know how the local TV business works. You start at these small stations, you cover the zoo fundraisers and the, you know, the fun local resident profiles, and you work your way up. Roanoke, Virginia is the 69th biggest market in the country. Oh. And it reaches 434,000 homes. So it's not, it's not huge. Yeah. And so it wasn't a surprise to anyone when Melissa accepted a job at WSOC in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is the 22nd biggest market and reaches 1.1 million homes so she like accepted the job it's a big fucking promotion absolutely and everyone is just over the moon happy for her yes like you know how sometimes you know people leave and everyone's like "Mm, bye bitch this wasn't like that no everyone's just so happy for melissa and her fiance adam was planning on joining her and he had a job interview lined up in charlotte yeah but before all the festivities the celebrations before everything he had to do the live shots at smith mountain lake with allison so adam was the cameraman and the technician in charge of getting the live signal back to the station right so he was basically when they went it was adam and allison Mm -hmm. she reported the news he did everything else and their reports at 5 45 a.m and 6 15 a.m were uneventful yeah you know they they interview them interview them again 30 minutes later interview them again for the later broadcast stuff like that and as always allison was cheerful on camera she exuded that kind of warmth and energy that morning tv producers love to see because it's fucking 6 a.m she's tired as shit and yet (laughs) she is one of those happy people i know you sit at home with your coffee and you're like how the fuck do you do this and and she's like literally i woke up at 2 30 this morning (laughs) <laughs> yeah what well, oh no way before that she left the house at one. Oh, that's right one. she's like i've been awake for five hours so she's like this, this is, is my day this is my afternoon thank you yeah back at the station the morning anchor kimberly mcbroom uh commented to the control room that it looked like a spectacular morning out by the lake at 6 46 a.m that it was not a spectacular morning at the lake it it was not at 6 46 a.m a man creeped up behind Ward, holding a handgun. Oh, shit. 
The man waited while Adam panned away from Parker and her guest, Vicky Gardner, mm-hmm. uh, to, like, look at the background and everything. Right. But once the camera was back on Allison, he started firing. Oh, my God. What? Oh, my God. Live on air while this interview is happening. Oh, my God. He starts shooting at her. So Allison flinched and screamed. She turned away from the gunman and tried to flee, and he fired several more shots. Allison could be heard screaming, oh my god. Oh my god. The control room. Sorry, I've seen this video. Yeah, that was um, what I was kind of alluding at earlier. I remember when this happened. Yes. And I remember watching the video of the shooting happening. Obviously, I don't live in Virginia. I did not see it live. But, I mean, it was a huge story, and I remember seeing the video, and it is terrifying. It is, and I think I accidentally stumbled upon it in a YouTube hole that I was in, and, like, Mm -hmm. there were a, unfortunately, there were a couple of newscasters being put in the face of extreme danger, Um, and there's one from, like, the 80s that I, I've been trying to look it up, and I cannot remember who it was, and what exactly mm-hmm. happened but this guy's holding up the actual news station and he's making this woman Fuck. report live while he holds her at gunpoint for a long time with like so while researching this i fell into the hole of like death caught on live tv because that's just so i don't know your tv is in your home and yeah the news like it's real and it's happening in front of you i remember seeing the case of Christine Chabuck, who she was a news anchor who, or a news reporter who on live TV shot herself in the face. Oh and my just God. While reporting the news, she said something like, Well, I think she was reporting on a shooting uh, that happened and the video messed up. And she was quoted as saying, Well, In keeping with this news station's tradition of showing you all the blood and gore, here's something never seen before. A suicide live on air. And she just pulled out a gun and shot herself. It fucking horrifying. Oh my god. So, right after this shooting happened, the control room at the news station, the staff cut away. And suddenly, Kimberly McBroom, the news anchor, her stunned face is what's on TV. Because they just cut back to the news desk. And she just says, you know... Not sure what happened there. We will, of course, let you know as soon as we find out what those sounds were from. Because some people knew right away that a gunman had opened fire on the news crew. But others were thinking or at least hoping that they were. this crew was simply startled by gunfire that was in the distance. Or maybe a car backfiring. Or little kids being dicks and, you know, shooting off fireworks next to the news station. Literally hoping that it was anything other than what they were fearing it was yeah so kimberly immediately launched into a commercial break and back at the news station the live shot signal was still up and running in the transmission room so editor mike episcopo instinctively turned the volume up yeah because he wants to know what the fuck is going on absolutely camera has he saw the shots he heard the screams the camera fell is no so he turned it up and he heard more screams and more shots and then silence oh my god so now it's 6:47 a.m. just 1 minute has passed and adam's camera is now on the ground yeah. tilted at a sideways angle 
Within a minute, Adam's arm fell in front of the camera, and his watch, still ticking watch, is visible back at the station. Because, they're again, they're still getting the feed from the mics, the camera, everything. Yeah. So, Melissa Ott hurried over to the transmission room where she asked, she's like, Mike, what was that? And Mike didn't want her to see this live shot up on the big screen. So he tried to come up with just any other explanation to get her out of the control Yeah, room. to get her out of there. Because he knows that he just watched her friend and her fiancé get shot. Oh my god. So while an associate producer is trying to get through to Allison and Adam's cell phones, Melissa is trying to reach Adam through the live shot signal. And at this point, she's not a producer talking to a field photographer. She is a woman who's about to get married, pleading with her future husband to tell her that he's okay. Yeah. At this point, police have yet to arrive on the scene of the shooting. So the only source of information is the live shot. Yeah. And this meant that Mike had to rewind and watch to see what the fuck happened And he had to watch his friends die again and again. So he walked to the edit bay. Why couldn't someone else do that? Because he was the one in charge of the control room. God. And at this station, everyone's friends. Yeah. I I mean, you're right. You're right. He walks back into the edit bay to play what's called the air check, which is the videotape of what was aired on TV. Mm -hmm. And the second time he's watching it, He sees what looks like a blurry face. He watches it again, slowing the tape down, and thinks to himself, like, holy shit, I can't believe Adam captured it. Because there in the right-hand corner of the screen was the face of the attacker. No way. So as Adam was shot and he fell and the camera fell, there was just a couple, maybe not even a second, glimpse of the shooter visible as he walked toward Allison and fired his fifth and sixth shots. Adam got him on camera oh, as he died. Oh my god. Oh, so, I'm so glad Adam got that. Yeah. During this time, again, Adam's live shot is still being beamed back to the station yeah. because there's no one there to turn it off. Right. And the live transmission was how the newsroom first heard confirmation that Allison, Adam, and the woman they were interviewing had been shot. Oh my god. Allison's microphone picked up the words, three down, two fatal. And just a few minutes later, the same information came across the police scanner. They knew it literally the second the police knew that their friends and co-workers were dead. Because of the live feed, yeah. In the tape editing room, Mike showed the tape's frozen image of the gunman to the station's chief photographer. And the person was identified as ex-employee Vester Flanagan. So their old co-worker was the shooter. So WDBJ had hired Vester using, who used the professional name Bryce Williams as a multimedia journalist on April 19th of 2012. So three years earlier or so. Mm -hmm. Documents relating to his time at the news station suggested that station's management considered him to be a very experienced reporter but that there were conflicts with other reporters and photographers. What kind of conflicts? Office memos showed that in July of 2012, Dan Dennison, who was then the station's news director, had ordered Flanagan to contact the health advocate 
after complaints were made of people feeling threatened or uncomfortable while working with him. Oh, like, is he, like, hitting on people, or... He was... Just making people uh, uncomfortable? You'll, you'll see. Oh, okay. okay. You'll see. So, he was dismissed by WDVJ on February 1st, 2013. Yeah. So, 10 months after he started. Yeah. Because of his volatile behavior. According to a former colleague, he lashed out at newsroom staffers after learning of his firing. And this was to the point that it resulted in the staffers being put in a room while police escorted him out of the building. Whoa. And Adam was said to have recorded Flanagan as he was being escorted out and had had a confrontation with him that day. Flanagan also allegedly threw a cross at Dan Dennison, the news director, saying, you need this. Like, you need Jesus. Oh, shit. The news station even provided security to the staffers for quite a time after the incident and told them that if he ever returns, you call 911. He is not a stable person. No, like, if he shows up here, that's the absolute emergency. Yeah. So Flanagan filed an EEOC, or Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Like the uh, Bishop same did. Commission. Yeah. Yeah, that's that you mentioned earlier. That is a weird um, tie. He... Although, I guess maybe not so weird. I could see that coming up a lot in any type of workplace, something where a murder eventually yeah. happens, that someone filed that previously. Oh, uh, yeah. So he filed this complaint against the news station and alleged racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. He had allegedly named Allison in his complaint, and following an investigation, the EEOC dismissed the complaint as just uncorroborated. Oh. Like, there, it just, it didn't hold any water. Yeah, yeah. Later, he would say that after this incident, he killed both of his cats out of rage. Holy shit, why? They were just cats! I I know. Also, this dude seems like he really has some issues. Yeah. So after his dismissal from the news station, he got a job at the United Health Group call center in town. There, he had a confrontation with a female employee who had casually pointed out how quiet he was being. And he aggressively responded, telling her to never talk to him again. Jesus. One of his neighbors in his apartment complex even described him as just this arrogant person who acted rudely towards people around him, and he was noted for sometimes throwing cat feces at the homes of neighbors that he had disputes with. Oh, so this guy's just a huge dick, and also of the cats that he killed. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is- no. He's a gigantic dick. He's super entitled. Yeah. So- Flanagan maintained accounts on Facebook and Twitter, and on both profiles, he repeated his claims of racial discrimination by WDVJ and specifically named Allison and Adam. He claimed that while working with Allison during her internship with WDVJ, she made a coded racial remark regarding a friend, and he also claimed that Ward had filed a complaint against him to the HR department after working with him on one occasion. Well, maybe he did something because he's a dick. Uh, sounds like it. So at 11.14 a.m. on the day of the shooting, just a few hours after, just, well, four and a half hours after, Flanagan uploaded a 56-second phone video that he had shot from first-person perspective of the shooting. Yeah. 
He uploaded that to both his Twitter and Facebook accounts. Why? Like, why? Because he was, he wasn't trying to hide what he did. It's like he was proud of it. He wanted it to be known. Yeah. He He was extremely proud of what he did and he had to share it. And he is Mm -hmm. sick. He's fucking trash. That's for sure. The video shows him walking up to the scene of the live interview with his handgun just out in in hand. And he's holding it for about 15 seconds before Allison, Adam, or the woman they're interviewing notice. Yeah, this, I've, I've seen this video too. Yeah. Because again, I, I was in the spiral and it's, yeah. y'all, uh, and listeners, it, just gonna put it out there. Don't watch them. Don't do it's it. It's not, I will, it's not something you want to see. It's, yeah. This story, this this telling is it's enough. And there's there's a lot of controversy around it because most news stations afterwards refused to air the footage um out of respect. And there was a lot of controversy because some people were saying they're not going to air this footage because it's like one of their own yeah. and yet they'll air all the violent footage they want of other people. And I get that. I get it. That... But there was also controversy because a lot of people viewed it as not watching it was playing into the fear that the shooter wanted to make a thing. I don't and I don't know if I agree with that. I don't necessarily agree with that, but the argument it, it led into does make sense that if you are to watch it don't watch it for entertainment value, but see it as the just brutal, horrible crime that it was. And on that hand, I'm like, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. But I am still of the camp of don't watch it. I think that, yeah, I mean, it was shot live, but... You know... In the same vein as when we did the Ukraine episodes... And I did the case of the Nepropetrovsk Maniacs. Just because it's out there doesn't mean you need to go see it. Yeah, just because the video's there, I think it's more respectful of the families to not search it. Well, and like... And to let their let their family members, let these people's last moments not be for public display. Even right. if the, you know, the opportunity's there. Well, and as, as true crime fanatics, I mean, I will... Mm-hmm. Ad- admit that i will say that obviously like that's i'm not Mm -hmm. hiding that you know we we sometimes look for the visuals and to be able to to pair it with the understanding and the why and what happened but there's something very different about a video versus an image because it makes it even more real and it so it's like the way i look at it there are multiple stages of reality when it comes to absorbing this type of information you've got reading (laughs) about it and that's your own imagination seeing these things unfold yeah which is uh, depending on how you look at it can be the worst or the least like yeah um then you've got the stage of looking at still images and seeing pictures of crime scenes etc and that can get obviously insanely graphic but then you've got the videos and like And I'm not talking about, like, documentaries that are put together. I'm talking about live footage and videos like this of incidents, of the actual incident happening. And I just think that's taking it a step further than you should. There's no real reason to do that. I agree. And, I mean, I totally understand the idea of needing 
not needing, but really wanting that visual piece. Yes. Because I can't tell you how many times there have been cases that Brittany's doing and I'm sitting here on my phone, like looking up, you know, the article or what the, what the victims look like. I do that almost every time you do a case. All the time. I want to be able to put a face to them. Yeah. And to, like, but, what's happening. But I don't know, just seeing video of the incident is just not... It's a level too I far. Don't know. Yeah. So, back to the video. So, he, in his video, he's shooting, he walks up to them holding his gun, he stands there for about 15 seconds, and they don't see him, they don't acknowledge him, because, like, yeah, he's three to six feet away from them, yeah. but they also have the big-ass news lights blinding them. Yeah. They're not focused on anything around them. They're focused on the interview itself happening. Mm-hmm. And he mutters, bitch, while pointing the weapon at Allison, lowers the gun, and then raises it again and starts just opening fire oh, directly at her. She flinches and screams before trying to get away. And the light of Ward's camera can be seen dropping as he's shot and killed before he pulls the camera away his phone camera, like his own camera that he's recording us on, and shuts it off. And from his video, it became clear that he was waiting until the news camera was pointed at Allison before opening fire to make sure that this was shown live on air. Oh my god, sick. Two hours after the shooting, at 8.26am, the ABC News office received a 23-page fax that was allegedly sent by Flanagan. And this fax that was titled Suicide Note for Friend and Family, he described his grievances over what he said to be racial discrimination and sexual harassment that was committed by black men and white women in his workplace. And he believed he was the target of all of this because he was a gay black man. And he claimed to have been provoked in this shooting because this shooting happened in 2015 and he was fired back in 2013 yeah yeah so there's a two-year span in between those two he said he was provoked by the charleston church shooting that had happened two months before where dylan roof opened fire on a black congregation and murdered 13 people in the worst mass shooting to hit south carolina that I can think of. Yeah. And one of the worst just racially motivated hate crimes in my recent memory. It, yes, it was, God, it was horrible. He described this shooting as a tipping point. He said, my anger has been building steadily and I've been a human powder keg for a while, just waiting to go boom. The sheriff's office said that Flanagan very closely identified with individuals who have committed domestic acts of violence and mass murder, as well as those that committed the 9-11 attacks. He also said that Jehovah had told him to act and expressed an admiration for Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, who were the perpetrators of the Columbine High School Massacre. Oh my god. And also, Seng Hui Cho, who is the perpetrator of the Virginia Tech shooting. In his suicide note that he faxed over to the news station, Flanagan said, Yeah, I'm all fucked up in the head. Jesus. So, just after 10am, about 
hour and 15 minutes or so after he faxed his suicide note, Flanagan called the ABC News office and he confessed to what he'd done. Again, he wasn't trying to hide it. No. He was proud of what he'd done. He was. And during the manhunt to find him, the police were able to track his cell phone and locate yeah, him that yeah. way. They knew where he was. So after abandoning his Mustang at the Roanoke Blacksburg Regional Airport, he drove a rented Chevy Sonic, which I don't know what that car is. Um, I know what a Mustang is, but I don't know what Sonic I think it's is. just a car. Um, okay. uh, but he drove it north on I-81 and then east on I-66. And an automated license plate reader in a Virginia state trooper's car. So you know how sometimes on the highway... You'll see cops that are just sitting on the side of the road as everyone's driving by. Yeah, Yeah, they're looking for people speeding. Their car can also, if they have it in place, automatically scan these license plates. What? Really? And that was how he was caught. Wow. It was identified as, that's the car Flanagan rented. That's him. And so the trooper, the state trooper called for backup and tried to, like, pull him over. But- he sped away. So after pursuing him less than two miles, Flanagan's car ran off the side of the road and struck an embankment. Mm-hmm. So it's like in a ditch, like gone. Yeah. When the officers got to him, he was found inside his car with gunshot wounds that were apparently self-inflicted while he was driving. Oh my god! Like so, he shot he's himself while his he's car driving, and holding a gun and, and shooting himself. Yeah. And then he died, and I assume that's when the car veered off the road into the embankment. Oh my god, so that was his suicide. He, wow. So he was airlifted to the Inova Fairfax Hospital in Falls Church, Virginia, Mm -hmm. but he was declared dead at 1.26pm. Basically around his arrival, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I imagine. I mean, his car was identified at 11.20. Oh. And two hours later he was declared dead, but... I don't know how fast helicopters, like, come and pick up people. I don't know how fast I mean, I think works. it's supposed to be pretty quick. Anyways, to close out my case, prior to the murders of Allison Parker and Adam Ward, no journalist had been killed on assignment in the United States oh my God. in almost a decade. Okay, that's actually sad. That's really sad. Just a decade? I was hoping you would say longer. Yeah. Well, I assume that takes into account journalists going into war zones i mean journalists journalists are there when shit happens you're seeing it on the news because someone is right there you know there is a person whose job it is to make sure this information is relayed to as many people as possible and they're gonna get right the fuck up there next to the burning building next to the bombs going off in the war zone Next to whatever. You no, know, you're right. They uh, they literally daily are faced with death and danger. And so maybe mm-hmm. a decade is a long period of time. It's just that was not the number I was anticipating you to say. Because yeah. No, it, and it's fair because you don't think about it. You don't think I that mean, that's not my job. You the, know? Well, that and when you turn on the news, you don't think about, you know, this person who's... Uh, talking to me about you know the this new f- political thing going on or 
the fire at Notre Dame or, you know, storms are going to be coming in. You don't think about them literally putting their lives on the line to make sure this information gets out to you and other people like you. But journalists do that every fucking day. They do. They do. And they don't get enough respect. No. I fucking... This podcast stands with journalists. I mean, absolutely. We do. Yeah. But that is the case of the murders of Allison Parker and Adam Ward, who were murdered just doing their job. Just doing their... and Just doing their job. To me, again, I know I mentioned it at the beginning, but that's something that's so scary. Because regardless of what your job is, you... It's very easy and very normal to get into the mode of like, this is my job. I do this every day. This is, this is my normal. And for just that to be so upended with violence is horrifying. It is. It really is. Um, but, uh, postmortem. Yeah, let's do it. Um, you go. (laughs) Um, okay. So the entire idea of, workplace homicide is terrifying again like i said at the beginning because it's a place that is your safe space but i think i think your case had more of the shock because in mine you know amy bishop had a history of being in situations where something happened that was very out of the ordinary and her co-workers and her students were hyper aware of her mentality and her mental instability your case takes two people who were very intertwined in friendship and unfortunately were the victims of such a horrific event that was on live tv Mm -hmm. and the fact that their entire area was they saw this yeah and that is something that is not only insanely traumatizing to their friends, especially the person who had to rewatch the video over and over to find the evidence, mm-hmm. but also a lot of people in the community. Like this was oh, yeah. this was their newscaster that they watch daily, and that's yeah. just no. Well, so I'm gonna you develop I give this to you. such a you develop such a relationship with your newscasters. You do. I don't even watch the news, and I back home I didn't, but. But you know their names. You know, I have a relationship that I've built with Kevin Ogle, with Kelly Ogle, with Linda Kavanaugh, with fucking Gary England. Like You wanna know something crazy? My current that's... newscaster is Rick Mitchell. We grew up with him. He was on News Nine. Really? Yes. Yeah. But it, but it's just things like that that, you know, you have never met these people. No, but they're a part of your life. They but they're if you watch the news daily these are people that are talking to you or talking at you, however you see it, every single day. Yeah. And the, these are the people that give you your information. You trust them. To just see someone killed, right? No, I, I agree. I mean, I your case was still so horrifying. Absolutely. And Because they were in the middle of frustrating. Their, their like weekly staff meeting. We we yeah, all just a, just a fucking normal meeting. We all that, have those weekly staff meetings. Yeah, they suck. Yeah, but you do not. But you just sit there and you talk about the agenda, wins and challenges. You know, here are some 
fun read. So, you know, whatever your meeting's about. But the last but, thing you expect is someone to just pull out a gun and start shooting. Execution yeah, style? Come yeah. the fuck on. But I also think it's interesting, both you and I work in typical traditional office settings. We do. And neither of us chose an office setting for ours. Because I, I consciously didn't, want didn't to. Because I... Okay, yes. same. I didn't want to because I was like, nah, there are a ton of times that our cases get too real. That makes it too, too it real. It does. Like I, like, I was like, I was like, I don't want to look at that. And I'm, there was, I'm going to choose a different environment. Exactly. And there was like the um, shooting that happened at YouTube in California last year. And that, yeah. No, I, I definitely remember and that. that was and... one that was in an office building very similar to where you and I both work. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not yeah. doing something like that. Like, that's not, yeah. that is not what I want to do. And yeah, so. Well, and also, I mean, in episode two, um, one of our very first episodes, we talked about our the cases that became our gateway to true crime. And mine was the post office shooting in Edmond where we grew up. And I mean, that was also workplace violence. It was um, a postal worker who went in and shot his coworkers. But yes, even still, I, I just didn't want to broach the office because I was like, I don't, I don't want to have to bring that to work as well. Totally. But hundred percent. But I agree with you. So, yeah. next time, you'll pick the topic. Yes, and I actually already have something in mind. Okay. So, I'll do topic, and we'll both do wine, as we now do. <laughs> yeah. Um. And next time, I... Honestly, this wine has grown on me. I have a glass left. I, mm, not even a glass left. Uh, the sweet bitch. Um, I give it seven... Of those strawberry with the goo-filled grandma candies uh, out of 10. You know, I will say for my rosé, the Chateau Saint-Michel rosé released um, just this year from 2018 Grapes. I'm definitely going to give that eight Super Mario stars out of 10. Okay. Yeah, it's a good one. You go. Get Invincible. Yep. Fuck those Goombas. Like, get an extra life, kind of do it. That is. All right. That's not what they do, but okay. The stars? Oh, yeah. They make you faster. Dun, 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 I forget it. It speeds the up song, the music. Right? Yeah, the mushrooms give you life. No, that's the... That's the... Do the hot... Dun, 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 oh, yeah. dun, it's like... Whatever. Anyway, sorry. You remember the ghost sound where it's like... When you're like in the dungeon? That one? Anyways. So... We are so far off topic. So, hey... Be sure to hop. (laughs) Be sure to hop on Apple Podcast. Please leave us a review. Let us know what you think. um, Add a comment, and yeah, we would do your shit. We would love it. Thank you. We would. Yes. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com, yes. that you can check out. Uh, check out our store, check out our glorious website, and our social media, where you can get access to pictures of our wine, pictures from our crimes, 
pictures of us, random ass memes I find at 1 a.m. that I'm like, Brittany, post this. Post this. Also. And you're like, okay. Also. You have to write the caption. You know what? But you did a really good job. But also. I tried. You know, if you're curious about what wine we have, and I know a lot of people like me are very visual. Um, so we do put the wines we feature in our show notes, but we also, every Wednesday, will post a photo of the wine for that's, that week's episode. Yes. So if you just yes, need to see what it looks like to help you find it in the store, because, I mean, me, same, that's what I have to do. Same, yeah. Um, check out there. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in and listening to this episode Hope y'all had a great time listening to it. Yes. I had an all right time uh, telling y'all about it, but definitely gonna need some, uh, just just some me time to decompress after I this. Mean, some me always. time and some me wine. But, um, but anyways, thank y'all so much. We love y'all. And this is Blood and Wine signing XOXO. off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.